from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Grocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, rubber duckies and bubbles. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Daniel Levitin, who will discuss music on the brain. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? I'm wide awake, actually. You know, how can you not be wide awake when science is so great and keeps you going? You know, I just had this great idea. Why don't we, like, get up really, really, really early one of these days and record, like, at, you know, 5 in the morning? That would be an amazing <laughs> idea, especially after you've seen the Aurigids. That would the Aurigids. That would be a great time to actually be recording. Indeed. <laughs> So how'd you like the Aurigids? The Aurigids are a very fascinating display of meteoritic impressiveness. One thing that was sort of perplexing was you would have expected the streaks to be more or less parallel, but in fact they came in all different directions. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly why that is. Scatters or something. Right. But, uh, anyways, it turns out in 1992, there was a crate of rubber ducks that were being delivered to the U.S. from China. Apparently that crate had leaked into the ocean. After about 15 or 16 years, some oceanographers have actually tracked it, and they believe that these rubber duckies were better at characterizing ocean currents than the conventional bobs that they put into the ocean. Right, uh, because basically they can test their water models and they can predict where they should wind up in the shores. Right. Yeah. They've been found everywhere from New England to the Arctic ice pack, in fact. Those rubber ducks go far. Yeah, and the main reason? Plastics. Plastics make it possible. Well, there was a very nice article in the Daily Mail, a UK newsletter, but uh, you can also find it in Chemical and Engineering News. Excellent. All right, well, I don't want to burst your bubble on the last story there. No problem. (laughs) (laughs) Those ducks, obviously, if they were going around the sea, they must have encountered a lot of soapy foam. Sure, with all the different pollutants out there, they probably encountered everything. (laughs) Especially with all the stuff we're dumping into the oceans, I'm sure it's quite, right. you know. Right. I'm sure most of it's not too pleasant. Right. But uh, researchers have been wondering exactly what makes the bubbles grow and shrink in solutions and if they can actually predict that. This is like a thermodynamic model or something? It has to do with uh, explaining how different types of foam form and how you can actually characterize it. Oh, okay. So this is actually a big mathematical problem that has uh, puzzled mathematicians for a while. Uh-huh. And now mathematician Robert McPherson from the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and theoretical material scientist David Strolovitz from Yeshiva University have cracked this problem uh, by using what they call the Euler characteristic. The Euler, uh-huh. Yeah, so the Euler characteristic apparently is an abstract uh, measure of like, the mean width and the shape and curvature of this bubble. And using that, they can predict what should happen to bubbles as they grow and collapse and that kind of thing. Right. This has very fascinating applications, for example, for detergents or uh, other types of things where you need to create foamy-type materials. Yeah. Uh, useful model and certainly something that people could be interested in. Cool. And if you want to learn more about this, you can take a look. It's in the recent edition of Science. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Rocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Daniel Levitin will join us to discuss music on the brain. So stay tuned.
back to the Grok's Science Show. Well, music has powerful, emotive, and expressive qualities that seem to transcend its description as a physical phenomenon. The secret to this, of course, lies in how the brain perceives these sounds. How exactly is music processed by the brain? Join us today to discuss this issue is Professor Daniel Levitin. Professor Levitin is the James McGill Professor of Psychology, Neuroscience, and Music at McGill University. Prior to his entry into academia, Professor Levitin worked in the music industry in a number of positions, including president for 415 Columbia Records. His work has appeared in both scientific journals and audio magazines and trade journals. And his new work, This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession, explores music for a general audience. Professor Levitin, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Nice to be here. Certainly a pleasure, and this is, I think, uh, certainly a very fascinating book, especially for all the music fans out there. But I think a number of people appreciate music, but they might not actually know what is music. Well, I guess everybody probably has an intuition about what music is when they like it. Uh, but <laughs> the problem is if they hear something that someone else is calling music and they don't like it, and they're trying to figure out what's going on there. And the definition that I like was actually proposed by the composer Verrez, and it's that music is organized sound. And this accounts for all different kinds of genres. The idea is whoever it is that created it organized something, you know, didn't just allow a computer to do it, and intended that it be music, then we should call it music. How does this fit with uh, John Cage, who had four minutes of silence? (laughs) Right, exactly, which uh, is, I guess, a, a musical statement. An interesting one, because Miles Davis talked about how when he was soloing, the most important part he thought was the space between the notes, not the notes themselves. And he only played the notes in order to demarcate what he considered to be important space. Hmm. In fact, in your book, you actually go into a great deal about Western music theory. Apropos of your, your question about what music is, in almost all cultures, music has certain components. And one of them is pitch. It, even in drum circles, you'll notice that the drums are tuned differently. So there's this sense of different pitches or different notes that are emerging. And of course, most if not all musics have rhythm. You don't just play a note and have it be the same duration as other notes. We also have timbre, where different instruments have different sounds. A flute and a trumpet playing the same note sound different. Meter, the way the rhythms group together. And, you know, it's actually interesting because in some cases, the rhythm is more important than the melody or vice versa. And if you like, I'll give you a little demonstration of that. Mm, I'm going to sing a melody, but I'm going to hold the note constant. So I'm only going to sing you the rhythm, and you have to guess what it is. Okay. All right. That would be the William Tell Overture. Right. By Rossini, also known as Lone Ranger theme song. There, you were able to detect it just from the rhythm. I mean, even though it has a melody, right? But you didn't need it because the rhythm is so distinctive. But there are other songs where the rhythm is no help at all. So tell me what song I'm singing now. I'm going to give you just the rhythm. Bum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 I will say uh, uh, Michael Jackson's Beat It. <laughs> <laughs> A valiant try. All right, well, <laughs> I didn't have much to go on there. <laughs> I was giving you Frère Jacques. Uh, okay. <laughs> there, the melody is what carries most of the identity of the piece, but usually we don't have such what a mathematician would call a degenerate case, you know, where one one of the variables goes almost to zero in terms of its importance. Really, what music is, if you're looking for a definition, uh, again, is a kind of optimal synthesis between rhythmic, melodic, and timbral properties. 
Each piece of music then has, do you think, a particular characteristic to it as any one of these sort of features? I think, I think it does. You could probably come up with some sort of linear equation that represents the degree to which the various components important in a particular piece of music. Take Ravel's Bolero. There you've got a single melody that plays over and over again throughout the entire piece, but what changes is the timbre. The instruments are what carry the day in that particular piece. Do you think perhaps formula then for what makes a piece of uh, music particularly striking or gripping? You know, I don't think so, because as we've just seen, you can have a perfectly popular piece of music that has primarily one of these elements to the exclusion of another. It's really mysterious what makes a song last a long time and what makes it powerful. Yet there are songs that pretty much uh, everyone will agree is uh, masterful. and uh... Almost. There are actually very few songs that everybody likes. Hmm. And that's one of the interesting things is that in addition to there not being very many songs that everybody likes, there aren't very many songs that everybody hates. Uh, there's a wide range of reactions to these. And just when you assume that you found a song that everybody is going to think is happy, you play it for somebody and it'll make them sad or vice versa. There's a wide range of individual differences. But what we've learned from the neuroscience of it all is that there is a point of commonality. And that is that if you're listening to music you like, regardless of any other feature, it'll activate the brain's pleasure center, parts of the brain involving the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, work that I published with my colleague Vinod Menon at Stanford University show that these pleasure circuits come online when you hear music you like, regardless of what kind it is. Hmm. Are there other parts of the brain that involve when uh, you particularly dislike it, the disgust centers? Absolutely. You can activate the amygdala, the, the so-called fight-or-flight system, <laughs> with music that you don't like. And you know, that's a whole other interesting thing, is that one of the p- things that people report as the most aversive thing about being out in public places is that they often feel that the music is intrusive and they can't get away from it. And they hate that. They hate the loss of control. They feel assaulted. Don't forget that the United States Army drove Manuel Noriega out of his compound (laughs) by playing ACDC for 48 hours. Uh, Too bad he wasn't a metal fan. (laughs) Yeah, I guess they would have played Barry Manilow then. (laughs) Uh, So I'm curious then, what other aspects of the brain are actually involved in intellectual appreciation of it? Well, one of the things on the brain side there is that the prefrontal cortex and the frontal lobe, these are the parts of the brain that are most highly developed in humans, they're very actively involved in tracking music as it plays. And again, Vinod Menon and I and others have shown this in a number of experiments that music listening, even if you're not a musician, engages these higher processing centers. And one of the ways in which they're engaged is they're trying to predict what's going to happen next. You know, don't forget, as, as your listeners know, the brain is a giant prediction machine, and it's trying to figure out what's going to happen next in the environment, and music gives it a lot to work on. Because of the pulse of music, you usually know when the next event is going to be, but you don't know precisely what. And a skillful composer and skillful musicians can sort of play around with this. They reward your expectations some of the time, and they violate them other times. So it's sort of like gambling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As people grow older, they tend to have their tastes solidified. Does is, is the brain sort of become a little less receptive to newer forms of music as it grows older? Yeah, and there, we've, we've seen this, and there's a neural basis for this, too. A lot of people report that the music they like best, or the music they remember best, is the music of their early teen years. 
And it's important to remember that the primary mission of the brain during the first decade and a half of life or so is to form as many new neural connections as possible. And after that, the primary mission of the brain shifts to pruning out unneeded connections. And that means that the learning that occurs during, say, the first 12 to 15 years of life has a completely different character. Your brain is literally becoming wired to the music you hear then. It certainly doesn't mean you can't learn new things later in life or you can't learn to appreciate new things, but most people find they have to do it with a more deliberate and willful effort. Then is the early exposure to certain forms of music, does that help develop uh, the brain in a certain way? It does. It absolutely does. And in this fashion, it parallels the acquisition of language. If you take a child and you prevent them from hearing spoken language for the first 10 years of life, no matter how hard you try, they're never going to be able to acquire fluent speech. And the same appears to be true of music. A child who is able to hear music early is able to extract rules and structure from that music and then can understand anything else that follows those structures. So it's not simply the case that if you play a kid classical music, they'll end up liking classical music the rest of their life, but at least they'll understand its forms. And, of course, rap and heavy metal and country use the same notes and the same chords and scales, uh, as opposed to, say, Chinese opera or Indian music. The child would have no preparation or grounding for that. I see. So early exposure is sort of key to uh, developing these ground rules. I guess. Yeah. So then how did music really develop in human history? This is a, a big question, and there's been a renewed interest in it in the last 10 years, and there are a number of people from different fields, from anthropology, archaeology, music, cognitive science, and neuroscience, among others, trying to sort all this out. Darwin thought that music was an evolutionary adaptation, that it was involved in sexual signaling and sexual selection. Stephen Mython, who's written a wonderful book called The Singing Neanderthals, argues that music preceded Homo sapiens, that Neanderthals had music, and they used it as a form of pre-linguistic communication. Uh, now, you can imagine from listening to, you know, the sort of common everyday animals that we know of, that before there were actual words or phrases, there might have been vocal utterances that had some communicative intent. They might sound sort of like Scooby-Doo trying to talk, right? <laughs> you could imagine the caveman saying to you know one of his caveman friends, "Er," or "Er," or "Er." You know, and those would have very different meanings. And, and even some languages have some tonal and temporal aspects to them. Right? They absolutely do. So we call this in linguistics, we call this prosody. There's the music of the language, and there are certain rules about it, such as in English, when a sentence goes up at the end, it usually signifies that we're asking a question. When the, the pitch goes down at the end, it indicates a statement. You know that this is a question because I went up at the end, uh, things like that. Uh, but there are also timing regularities and other things. And there are differences across languages, but we learn those during our period of language acquisition. The brain sort of, over the millennia, built out in layers from a center. So the outer layers of the cortex in humans are the most recent phylogenetically. And it's certainly the case that there's music and language processing there. But the fascinating thing is that when you listen to music or attend to language, some of the core areas, even parts of the so-called reptilian brain that we share with all vertebrates, those are activated by music and language also. So I think that part of the clue to the evolution of music is that, indeed, music activates primitive structures, in many cases structures more primitive than language. I think that's one piece of evidence 
that music may have preceded language. But it's hard to sort all this out. We're still, the field is still in its infancy, I would say. Is there any evidence for this in early primates, exhibit these kinds of traits? There have been a lot of people trying to find music and things like music in other primates and in other animals. And the results are kind of mixed, but intriguing. So there was a well-known paper, well-known in my field anyway, that monkeys did not show octave equivalents. You know, in Western music, we have this thing called the octave. Do, re, mi, fa, sol, la, ti, do. The two dos, do, do, are given the same name, and they stand in a frequency ratio of two to one. And they're given a privileged position in all human musical systems. They're treated as the same note, according to music theory. And even non-musicians understand them to be the same note. When women and men sing together, for example, happy birthday, they're an octave apart. One study showed that monkeys have the octave. Another study showed they didn't. Studies with songbirds show that most species can't even recognize their own song in transposition. That is, the melody is being repeated to them, but using different notes, something that all human children can do. So the evidence is really mixed. Hmm. So where is current research going right now in terms of the brain and its appreciation of music? I think the two biggest things that we're trying to grok, if I can say that. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to understand more about music and emotion, and this is running alongside parallel developments in emotion in the brain. And as I said, one of the big developments is that music activates the same pleasure centers as are activated in winning a bet or eating chocolate, having sex. Uh, taking drugs. So there's a neurochemical story there that's just emerging about how music may modulate dopamine. A second big area is studies of, as, as you had asked about, music and language, trying to understand to what extent they share similar brain regions and to what extent they activate distinct and separate neural circuits. These are all fascinating areas. Uh, we are running slightly out of time, though. I, I am curious, what is your favorite music? I have favorites in every genre, I think. I listen to classical. I love Prokofiev, Tchaikovsky, Chopin. I listen to hip-hop. I like Naz and Ludacris. In rock, I listen to Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Dashboard Confessional. In jazz, I listen to Miles Davis. I like country. I listen to Rodney Crowell, Guy Clark. My taste is pretty wide, I think. A renaissance man of uh, music there. (laughs) (laughs) I just hope I don't get Baroque. (laughs) Uh, All right, it does look like we're slightly out of time for this segment, but just to mention again, your book is This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. Uh, Professor Levitin, thank you very much for talking to us uh, on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. My pleasure. And you're just listening to Professor Daniel Levitin discussing music on the brain. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned.
right, here we go. It's the Grokatron 5000. It is, of course, our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, Are They Rocking or Is the Show Dead? Professor Levitin, are you ready to play our game? I am. Okay, here we go. Person number one, Rocking or Is the Show Dead? O.J. Simpson. The show is dead. Tired of hearing about O.J. Well, if, you know, if he had written a book called I Did It and I'm Happy That I Got Away With It, ha, 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 I think it might have sold uh, a few copies less. <laughs> <laughs> Came awfully close to that, though. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Number two, Jerry Springer. Oh, man, I'm sorry. The show is dead. <laughs> you know, he started out as a smart politician, and I'm tired of that whole thing, too. <laughs> These are just my opinions, by the way. They are not the opinions of science. <laughs> but maybe science one day will chime in. <laughs> All right, number three, Britney Spears. You're, you're really stacking the deck here. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like. Uh... Yeah, uh, Britney Spears, the show is over. For me, the show was over a couple of years ago on that. I have to hand it to her, though. People say that she sounds like everyone else or everyone sounds like her. But, in fact, she has a sound. And I think that that's important to realize when you have a flash-in-the-pan artist, unlike Britney, but an artist who has a single hit, it tends to be the case that they sounded like everyone else. Mm -hmm. For someone to sustain a career in the music business, they really have to have their own sound, and she sure does, mm -hmm. or did. Uh, number four, Tiger Woods. Oh, well, Tiger's happening, yeah. <laughs> Tiger rocks. <laughs> All right, good. At least he's a, he's a stadium burner. <laughs> <laughs> All right, number five it is, of course, our perennial favorite on the program, the President of the United States, George Bush. Uh, do you mean the, the guy who was actually elected, Al Gore, or do, do you mean... The guy who's sitting in the White House right now. <laughs> I moved to Canada the day that he took the oath of office, oh. <laughs> and I haven't lived in the United States since he took office, so I don't feel that I'm qualified to give an opinion, <laughs> although my behavior may indicate a preference for... <laughs> I, I think a lot of people would have liked to have followed suit. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Levitin, I do want to thank you for sticking around playing our game. And, of course, talking about your book, This Is Your Brain on Music, The Science of a Human Obsession. Thank you very much. And you know what the answer to last week's question of the week? Mm. Dwarf planets they are, but ignore them we cannot. Mm. Pluto, one of them, it is. These new planets are the dwarf planets. Mm. My friend, this is the bomb Spaniard. The laser-guarded missiles coming straight at you, my friend. Coming straight at you to tell you. Exactly what are you going to do when I hit you? That's right, Esteban, no, with the laser. How does it work? Email us at groxathotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but Esteban will know just where you are. <laughs> and that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For the Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. Music